Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's a few seconds before 4 o'clock. It's Jen Bartlett here until 6 this evening. Thanks to Chris. Today, victory in court in Peru for Indigenous activist facing seven years jail and about $300,000 in fine. I'll be speaking with Thomas McDonough from the Bolivian Democracy Movement. Issues from the Independent and Peaceful Australian Network with Shirley Winton. Gene Ethics Network issues with Bob Phelps and the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies at Sydney University facing closure after 30 years. I'll be speaking to former Director, Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees. But first, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when some biased cynic suggested, well, more than suggested, asserted, big supremo Scuttlebim son had pulled this recognised Jerusalem as the capital of Zion move, our embassy there, policy out of the bag of tricks, oh, and, and hate, 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 evil, evil Iran, because of the substantial number of assumed Zion supporters in the electorate Zion advisor David Chalmer was contesting. A ridiculous claim scuttled them immediately scuttled denied and so there's obviously no truth in the suggestion because scuttled them is big supremo and would never mislead people to put it nicely but sadly like everything else he touches he had barely stated his new policy that it turned to human excrement leaving poor Scuttle then flat on his back trying to foot-juggle David, the electorate, US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, Donald's retiring UN of the US of the UN of the world ambassador, Nikki, hell to the good guys, hell to the bad guys, Zion, big supremo Benjamin, not another Yahoo, Indonesia in other people's business, trade deals with Islamic regimes, general cynicism with no success whatever, a total juggling disaster, ending up covered in a putrid pile of the numerous items he had been trying helplessly to control, including all that excrement into which his policy had transmogrified. Interesting, the Caring Business Class Party warned voters in former Big Supremo Malcolm Tunnable's former very, very, very safe blue ribbon seat, Zion advisor David was contesting that it needed to win to maintain its majority because does anyone seriously think the excrement covered scuttle them and the Caring Business Class and Hayseed and Sheepshit lot have lost their majority, that the, in parentheses, independent good doctor means they have not maintained their majority? It was kind of caring business class endorsed versus caring business class not endorsed and we can confidently assure those concerned scuttle them once he's cleaning them up from the juggling disaster and the team will survive her concerns for climate change, if there is such a thing as climate change, survive with the help of the socialists who will swallow their differences which are 
The first says there's no such thing as climate change, so we don't need to threaten our delicate economy doing anything about that which doesn't exist. And the second says, no, no, climate change is real, but we don't need to threaten our economy, our delicate economy, doing anything serious about it, just a few little cosmetic treatments to show we care. Or on our concentration camps, raise a wire and sink the boats policy with the help of the socialists who share the policy. Other than the socialists promising to torture those seeking refuge with compassion. It's reassuring to have real choices, isn't it? Last week we left the architect of our love Zion hate evil evil Iran policy Donald Trump the poor declaring he would bomb evil Iran into the ground until he discovered it was his very 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 close friend Saudi and therefore he needed more information and then Donald thought maybe he should say if the more information showed the Saudi Democrats that had a bit to do with the murder the US would respond with harsh measures. Not so harsh, of course, as denying them the billions of dollars of train-killer merchants of death merchandise they buy off the US of. But he rang his very, very close friend, the Crown Prince, and told him the US of opposed going around the world killing people we don't like. And the Crown Prince told him he too opposed going around the world killing people we don't like. And because they so opposed going around the world killing people they don't like, the pair of liberty, freedom and democracy lovers bemoaned that on the one hand they had been forced to send train killer ships to the Chinese coast to contain China's aggression at wanting to sail in those USR waters and on the other hand being forced to convert Yemen into the most devastated, miserable, terrifying, ignored spot on the planet. And Donald's next unequivocal principled explanation via the Crown Prince is that some rogue assassins infiltrated the embassy. And Donald would hit those rogue assassins with the harshest measures ever for embarrassing his very, very close friend, the Crown Prince. And this explanation is the most plausible, because the Saudi embassy would be a soda to infiltrate for any self-respecting rogue assassin, especially on the very day a bad guy dissident had been invited in for a chat and a bit of murder. Security would be almost non-existent, and let's face it, after a lifetime in business, trample the poor style, Donald of all people would know a rogue when he saw one. Why, he probably shaves every morning, making it hard to believe that no one seems to believe this version, because given the dissident didn't look like a man at the peak of fitness, the latest version of this version, that he died accidentally while involved in a brawl with the rogue heavies, obviously dealing with them one by one Jackie Chan style, until some rogue non-assassin got in a lucky punch, sounds specially plausible. So plausible, Donald says, yes, he could believe that version of that version, and anyway, Saudi has promised to conduct a full investigation into itself, which should sort it out, and says it feels Jamal Khashoggi's family's pain as much as they do, perhaps even more. It's painful that a simple little assassination has been treated so seriously. It it challenges a government's independent rights. It's no one else's business.
Thus, we look forward to this week's version of the versions, or perhaps some totally new version, and maybe, given his predecessor George W. Bash, the workers' response to a bit of Saudi murder, Donald could invade evil Afghanistan and evil Iraq. Oh no, so, sorry, silly me, he can't, he, he still is bringing liberation to those countries. Oh well, good excuse to invade evil, evil, evil Iran. Now, time for some good news. Our older listener will remember, back when the other Malcolm, Malcolm Wage Freezer, was big supremo, and his big economic guru, the sadly lamented Philip Lynch, the workers, warned no government could survive if the unemployment rate ever got as high as a frightening 5%. Well, Thursday, they announced it had reached 5% coming down. And this was great news. This is the good news for this government, because 5% now means full employment. No, no, can't work that one out either, listener, but we can be sure the 5% whooping it up on their exorbitant dole payments will be thrilled to hear they're fully employed. And some commentators said full employment, with only a few million now fully employed unemployed, could lead to the slow wages growth caring employers are all so concerned about being less slow. And caring employers were forced to warn that they may not quite be the case. And the International Monetary Fund this week said Trublowozzi's economy was one of the very strongest in the world, leading some naive commentators to speculate this could lead to the slow wages growth caring employers are all so concerned about being less slow, and caring employers were forced to warn that that may not quite be the case. And the Trublowozzi Business Profits Council was forced to warn it is naive to think that record corporate profits would lead to higher wages, to the slow wages growth they're also concerned about being not so slow, because there's no relationship whatever between profits and wages, because if profits go up by zillions, it's good for all of us, and bad for all of us if wages go up at all. Well, to be fair, the caring employer said wages must be tied to productivity, not profits. And workers needed to be much, much more productive if they wanted to counter slow wages growth, which keeps caring employers tossing and turning all night, showing how selfish workers are. But if the lazy, avaricious workers had pulled their fingers out and become more productive, imagine how record, record those record profits would have been. And it's only the workers' own fault, own sloth, that they can't share in all that wealth. And then if they did become more productive, then clearly the next step would be to become more productive. I keep saying I don't know why caring employers bother to employ workers at all. They're such a drag on the economy. It's clearly just the goodness of their big, big hearts which must burst at the selfishness of evil unions and lazy avaricious workers holding a huge rally this morning demanding more of those profits. What's that doing for productivity in this country? But finally, sadly, one caring employer I must be oh so slightly critical of, or grammatically of whom I must, but never mind, far be it for this segment to criticise Lord Rupert of Wapping's invaluable contributions to bringing us all the news we need to know. Fashions weeks, cup weeks, a couple 
Philip Newlyweds announcing a new hungry little mouth for the British taxpayer to feed in the luxury to which that lot are accustomed. The big news. But a headline in Lord Rupert's whopping sin. Crooks grab 47 billion. Organised crime costing us 1,900 per person. Half-page story. But not a mention of... Banks, insurance companies, retail super funds, the usual well-known crooks. Organised state-supported crime? Not a mention. Come on, Lord Rupert, lift your game. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And he will be back tomorrow, 9 o'clock until 10, with his very popular program, City Limits, with a a little bit of help from a, a few friends, I believe. It's now coming up to 12 minutes past 4 o'clock. We'd never do that, Freddie. Excellent. We're planning such a good time with you, Freddie. Come to the screening of Bohemian Rhapsody on Thursday, November the 8th from 6.30pm at Palace Westgarth Cinemas and have a real good time with Freddie Mercury and Queen. Tickets are 25 full, $20 concession online at 3cr.org.au or from the station, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. You can also call 9419 8377 during business hours. All funds raised go to keeping 3CR on air. If you want to have a good time, just give me a call. No, I have it all in front of me right now, so I don't have to get to number four and try and think what number five is. And these are the five ways how you can tune into 3CR, just in case you haven't got it yet. 8.55 is the old AM dial. Digital is 3CR digital. Live streaming, that means 3cr.org.au slash streaming. And that means that you listen in real time. Audio on demand, which is also 3cr.org.au. And then you add your program. And that means that you can listen to any program for one week and then after that week the next program the next time for that program follows on and the final is the podcast when programs are sent direct to your computer so that you can download them and listen to them anytime you choose and that's again 3cr.org.au and backlash backslash podcast and then you put in your program so that's how it is no excuse for not listening to 3cr great news from peru another brick in the wall this time it's a victory for the indigenous communities in peru relating to the 2011 protests against the proposed santa Ana mine project owned by bear creek mining corporation in canada a court decision which hopefully will be a precedent setting for the future of social protests in Peru. I'm speaking once again to Thomas McDonough from the Bolivian Democracy Centre, one of the many international organisations 
working with and supporting the indigenous people of Peru against the excesses of multinational mining corporations. It wasn't the best of phone lines to Bolivia, but I believe it's important to get the message through. Thomas, just remind the listeners of the basis which has been the successful appeal in the Supreme Court of Peru. The basis for Walter Adeviri's appeal was that, first of all, he was being charged based on a legal theory called indirect perpetrator, which implies that he manipulated other people to commit a supposed crime against their will. Uh, And this was one of the most controversial aspects of the case because it would have set a legal precedent in Peru that would have weakened the broader social movement struggles in Peru. Uh, this legal theory, this idea of indirect perpetrator for an event like a, like a, a social mobilization, this, this has never happened before. And this legal theory has been used in the past, I guess, for crimes like terrorism against the state during the Civil War or crimes against humanity. It was used to uh, convict the former Peruvian president, Alberto Fujimori, for crimes against humanity. So there are the types of crimes that this legal theory had been used in the past. And in this case, the regional court in Puno, so the eventual appeal was taking place in Lima, in the capital of Peru. The original hearing had taken place in Puno, the regional court, and the judges there had, at the last minute, they had changed the charges against Walter Arubiri from the original charges that were being brought by the public prosecutor, and they had use this legal theory of indirect perpetrator to convict him and hold him directly and solely responsible for the damages caused during this social mobilization. That was the first uh, grounds for appeal, uh, was the fact that the regional court had diverged from the uh, charges being brought by the, the public prosecutor. The second grounds for appeal was that Robert Aviziri is a member of the Aymara indigenous community. He was, you know, he's a, a spokesperson and social leader for the Aymara indigenous community, which means that he was entitled to a series of rights, indigenous rights. And in the court case, he was denied his indigenous identity. So, you know, indigenous communities they have a series of collective rights uh, beyond the sort of human rights. These collective rights in relation to cultural identity and their autonomy and their territory. But he was denied this indigenous identity in the in the court hearing. So that was the second grounds for appeal. What about the issue of the constant state of emergency which the government brought in and which goes against the rights of the, the indigenous people? This is another really controversial part of how the Peruvian government in this case, but also other governments in the region, are criminalising social protest. In the south of Peru is what's called the Mayan corridor, which is like a, a region in the south of Peru that goes out towards the coast where somewhere uh, these natural resources are exported. And in those regions for the last year there have been several months of ongoing states of emergency. These states of emergency, you know, are used during times of conflict and civil war and and now these states of emergency are being introduced 
to come down to come down on social protests, so to suspend the, the human rights of the communities who are protesting and to militarize these areas. So you know, that's what the, the state of emergency involves in practice, you know, the suspension of rights, militarization, and quite often very violent clampdown by state forces on communities that are organizing in the region against extractive projects. Was this issue brought up in the appeal? No. The issue of the state of emergency wasn't part of Adiviri's appeal. It had been brought up, though, both this issue and a related issue of the mining companies, you know, mostly multinational corporations, many Canadian, uh, European, um, uh, entering into contact with the police, with the public police force providing private security for the mining companies. There's another aspect of criminalization, and both the state of emergency and these uh, contracts between the multinational mining corporations and the and the state police force, you know, they've been brought up in, in international courts, in like uh, international human rights courts, whenever periodic assessments are done of the Peruvian government human rights record. Uh, but it, it wasn't an it wasn't an element of the appeal in this specific case. Did Walter have the opportunity to speak or was it done through his lawyers? It was uh, done through his lawyers from what I understand. It was actually broadcast live on the Facebook page of the, the Peruvian Supreme Court. You could go on there and watch it and it was just like two lawyers and a judge reading sentence and it's really formalised. You know, the, the judge is reading off a piece of paper and one of the lawyers asked the question and which is clarified, and, you know, it took about 10 minutes, but he really wasn't there himself. What was the feeling in the community when they heard the result? There seems to be, like, a lot. The issue is that, you know, this appeal was accepted and his sentence was overturned, but the courts have also ruled that the case should start from scratch again in the regional courts. So this is kind of a, you know, shadow over an otherwise very positive outcome is that, so there may well be this sort of second case in the regional courts against that is really a lot of relief. And there were regional elections uh, the following, like this happened on the Friday and the regional elections were on the Sunday. And that is really was elected in, as governor of this region on the Sunday. So this was kind of another part of this story that I really was a, a, a candidate in the, in the regional election, and that's why the court hearing took place so close to the regional election. And he was elected. He's got quite, a, in his discord at least, quite quite a strong, sort of, you know, critical stance on mining and the role of multinational corporations. So it would be an interesting time uh, in the future in the region to see how that plays out as he's in a position of power. Well, this case goes way back to 2011. How far back these new court cases go to? What became known as the Aymarato, so these, uh, this social mobilization, this, you know, like a regional strike uh, that was called uh, against this proposed silver mine in the Puno region. The protest took place in 2011, and directly after that, uh, these legal cases began. And the cases at first were brought against, I think there were like, initially there were investigations against like 100 people, 100, and they were all community leaders, spokespersons and representatives of indigenous communities. 
and then charges were brought against 18 of them. And this went on, you know, this went on for years, for several years, and it was only in 2017 that the charges were dropped uh, against most of those people having no legal basis. But this was after, you know, several years of legal expenses, several years of having their public reputation attacked in the media and online. And, and this is kind of the other side of this, like what we see as uh, judicial persecution. So, you know, without ever having been convicted or exiled through the courts, you the, you know, impact on your personal life, on your public reputation, on your finances, personal family finances. The court hearings have gone on, you know, all these years, and it was only like five, six years later, 2017, that most of those people were uh, acquitted. Uh, and then Walter Alizuri was convicted in late 2017, and then his appeal has dragged on until now. Now his appeal has been accepted and the sentence has been overturned. This long, like six or seven year process of, of people having their, you know, their, their lives turned upside down. Uh, and as a consequence, their community organizing and their activism undermined. You know, this is part of the strategy of dragging people through the courts in this way, you know. So this new hearing, it only relates to Walter. It doesn't go right back to that original 200 people. No. The Supreme Court hearing the appeal was just in relation to to Adebiri. It was just based on his case. Has there been a reaction from the mining company or the Peruvian government? No. The mining company, you, you might remember in our last conversation that you know, the international campaign that we were part of, uh, working in close collaboration with the Duma, a local human rights organization in, in Puno, uh, and other international allies. You know, it, it was a public sign-on letter. It was uh, addressed to the Supreme Court, the government, and the company, you know, highlighting the injustices of the case, and highlighting these legal precedents that were at stake in the case, and calling for the charges against Adobe specifically to be, for the conviction to be overturned. So that final letter was signed by over 130 organizations from all around the world, and it was delivered to the Supreme Court, to the government, and to the company. And the company just replied saying, you know, we don't have anything to do with this, thank you for the information, you know, just a very formal reply, and, you know, just kind of totally downplaying their role in, in having their role in, in these circumstances that gave rise to this social conflict. You know? The company in this case doesn't have a direct role in the charges against Adelaide. Sometimes multinational corporations and their lawyers do have a direct role in criminalization cases. But in this case, the company didn't have a direct role. But it very clearly has an interest and it very clearly benefits indirectly from you know, this process of criminalising communities and their, and their spokespersons and driving them through the courts. So it's very much an actor, you know, they completely downplayed their role in, so far in the campaign. Is this company bear mining also in other parts of Peru? Yeah, it's a good question. The, this same company also has a mining concession in the north of Puno, so in this same region, the Puno region, but not in the south. The mine that was opposed and uh, that the government eventually sold back on was down at the 
Bolivian border, so then in the south of the region. But up in the north of the region, the same company has a, another mining concession. They're moving ahead. There's less community organization and community resistance there, and they've been able to move ahead and into the exploitation of the mines. Yeah, and another thing, like one of the big things for the communities and the organization that we've been working with is that the company also still has the, the legal concession to the mine mining projects in the, in the south, you know, the one that was opposed and the one that you know has been resisted. The company still has the, the concession to that mine. They're not, I don't think they're going to go anywhere anytime soon. Uh, you know, quite often what they do is you know, hang around until the political winds change, try to push their, their interests forward. So I wouldn't be surprised that in the months or maybe years to come that this comes back onto the agenda. Even so, I know that they have to go back to court again, but it is a victory for the people in a case like this, and it must give the people a lot of a lot of joy to know that, that they've fought up against these mining companies and they've won. Very much so, very much so. It was important, like it's an important symbolic victory that, you know, for Indigenous communities, uh, that one of their spokesperson representatives is, you know, the, the sentence against them has been overturned. But more importantly, you know, there this issue of the legal precedents that were on the line in the case. You know, the fact that those legal precedents have been blocked, very real, very tangible achievement, you know, in, in the future. And the, the lawyers at Duma, the organization we've been working with in, in Puno, the lawyers there were very clear that the, the legal precedents on the line here, you know, they will have a huge influence over whether or not indigenous People feel that they have the right to go out and protest or raise up their voice and organise against these kinds of projects in the future. In that regard, it was, you know, there was a lot of relief on the one hand, and there was a lot of joy and enthusiasm. And uh, I think people will be, you know, more inclined. Although it comes at a very high cost in other terms, you know, that we've spoken about personal terms, but at least these really grave, you know, legal these charges that have been used in the past to convict people of terrorism and crimes against humanity won't be able, like for the time being, won't be able to be used against community leaders and spokespersons in, in social protests. Finally, Thomas, is there any significance in the fact that in the same week as the court case revolving around Walter, that Alberto Fujimura was, had his partner nailed? Is there any connection in the courts? It's very hard to like, draw direct connections. I'm just wondering what's happening in the legal system there. There's been a, a crisis in the Peruvian Supreme Court in particular in the last few months whereby a number of judges and you know, people working in the justice system have been you know, recorded. There's like a series of audio recordings of telephone calls and what the audio recordings reveal was a whole sort of network of corruption, basically, in the, in the court system. So the, the Supreme Court, uh, like several judges, were fired, or people working in the justice system. I think there was a real effort underway to try to clean, you know, clean up the image of the justice system, and the Supreme Court in particular. So it's hard to know, both in the Fujimori case or in the case of Walker Abbey you know, what has had uh, a defining impact in the end. But I think this 
kind of general context of all of these corruption scandals, both in the government and, you know, the role of multinational corporations in, you know, buying off politicians and, uh, and the Supreme Court, like all of this other web of corruption that was revealed by these uh, telephone conversation recordings. I think it definitely created a context where the government was trying to clean up its image and, uh, and the Supreme Court, you know, also was probably feeling, feeling that pressure, you know, and the like, newly appointed uh, judges in the Supreme Court were probably particularly attentive to that. It maybe had some influence, but it's very hard to draw, you know, direct connections. Okay, well, all I can say is congratulations again to all concerned and if you could pass on to the people that you work with our, our best wishes and congratulations to them. Thank you, John. I will indeed. Uh, I will pass on your best wishes and, and thank you uh, for following the case and, and being a voice for the communities involved and organisations involved in the international sphere. And that was Thomas McDonough from the Bolivian Solidarity Network in Bolivia, not very far from Puno, where the um, people have been fighting against the silver mine for many, many years and they've won. And now with this court case, the appeal has been won. So it goes back to the court in Peru now, the lower court, and hopefully they'll get justice this time, next time as well. It's 3CR and it's 4.32. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Celebrate International Day of People with Disability at the Victorian Disability Sport and Recreation Festival. With over 30 exhibitors and three activity zones, come and try different inclusive sports, meet Paralympians and watch the AFL Wheelchair Challenge. This is a free, accessible, family-friendly event. Monday the 3rd of December from 10 till 3pm at Crown River Walk. For more information, visit dsr.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Speaking now with Shirley Winton from the Independent Peaceful Australia Network about a number of issues looking at war and peace and beginning with relations between China and the US. I think an article, Shirley, by Richard Stone encapsulates the whole story, fanning the flames of a new Cold War. Absolutely, and I think, you know, his articles are really good because they 
backed up with a lot of facts and evidence. I think it's pretty obvious to most people that the situation is escalating or moving towards a war, the trade war or the sanctions that the US has put on China, the trade sanctions. They're usually, you know, there's a saying about trade wars are a means of a military conflict. There's a kind of a saying that goes back to the First World War. Generally, I mean, I think everyone knows is that, you know, America has for the last 60 years has held the hegemony, world hegemony economically and militarily and it's been unrivaled power. There was a period where the Cold War period in from 50s, 60s, 70s and maybe early 80s where there were tensions and conflict and rivalries, I suppose you could say, between the US and also the former Soviet Union. What's happened, probably been happening in the last 10, 15 years is the rise of China, the economic, mainly the economic rise of China globally. Chinese capital has been moving across the world quite extensively and it is threatening the US dominance, US economic dominance. In, in our region, in the Asia-Pacific region, there is far greater presence and influence of Chinese capital. A lot of it is investment, a lot of it is investment in infrastructure, but nevertheless, it is posing a threat. It is challenging the dominance of the US. And this is leading to the tensions, that's what's underlying the tensions in the South China Sea, what's happening around the Pacific Islands uh, where suddenly American, or rather the US and Australia have suddenly taken interest in events taking place in, the, in Vanuatu and in Papua New Guinea where there's been an inc- quite a substantial increase in Chinese investments. And not only increase in Chinese investment, but also there, there are big investments in infrastructure and a lot of it, like in Asia, in, sorry, in Papua New Guinea, the investments that are most prominent are in building ports and also building airstrips. There's a similar situation in um, Vanuatu. Recently there's been um, information about Nauru and the suddenly Australian government has decided take more interest, that is, in terms of political and economic interest of what's happening in Nauru, specifically because there's been stronger presence of um, Chinese investment there. So it is um, underlying all the military tensions, the South China Sea, both dispute is the two powers, which is leading to, to the Cold War. And I should say that from what I've read, I think that most people would agree that it is being largely instigated by the US, particularly the military provocation, you know, under the auspice of, of the US. And Australia has played, in, uh, as a part of the US-Australia alliance, has been a usually, you know, obsequious, faithful ally and is responding to what US wants its allies to do, which is to defend the, the US interests and uphold the US interests around the world which is also happening in the Europe with NATO, I should say, as well. The tensions, it is a, a dangerous situation. Whether it's just Trump or whether it's the overall US foreign policies that also embrace the Democrats, the Republicans and Democrats actually do have uh, almost identical foreign policies. Under Hillary Clinton, there was a definite move to up the ante on China 
to challenge China and Russia, obviously. And that was also, again, driven by, by U.S. capital, U.S. multinational corporations. The thing to me is that the more trade barriers they put on China, the more it hurts China, of course, but it also impacts on the U.S. as well. Yeah, and, that, and that's, the, that's a real contradiction. I don't think there's any way out for U.S. economic problems. They've got huge overproduction. Um, they've got large unemployment. A lot of the industries have moved out. The trade sanctions in China would, would actually mean that it's the, Australia, uh, sorry, the American workers are going to suffer because America's economy is dependent on trade from China. There's no way out for them. I mean, there's no, they're looking, they're searching for, scouring for solutions to their economic problems, and which are leading to a major economic crisis. And in some ways, the focus on China is, I, I don't know whether that, they really think that that's going to solve their economic problems or whether, I, I probably think that they don't, but it is part of the spin that they are, emanating that they are promoting to American people, that America's economic problems lie with, with the fact that China is capturing the markets and, and industries. And that's a, a line that they hope will create that kind of diversion from America's, from the U.S. own inherent problems of, of overproduction of capitalism, basically. Have you seen any joy from the Labor Party platform on China? No, there's not joy. Um, I think the Labor Party, just like the Liberals, I think that they're divided actually. I think there's within the Australian ruling class and probably, and probably within the US ruling class, i.e. within those parliamentary parties and also amongst the big business, there are divisions on how to deal with China. But on the one hand, China is for them is economically they're more dependent on China for capital. They can't depend on the US as much as I did in the past for capital. But with the China rising as the, the biggest economic power worldwide, there are, you know, Australian big business interests that would benefit from greater dependency on China and also would not want to see a major conflict erupting between America and China because it would mean that as the Chinese regard Australia as being part of the US imperialist camp. So anything that sort of is ex the punishment on the US would also be extended to Australia. There's a lot of contradictions underlying the conflict between the US and, and China and also within, within Australia. There will be probably a lot of small businesses too who will not benefit from the, in Australia I'm talking, you will not benefit with this antagonistic approach to China who also see their future lying with having a, a trade with China, exporting their products to China. Now if there is that big payback from China in terms of trade, I mean that could include Australia. So I think that the, both the LNP and, and, the, and the ALP I think they're militarily, they're pretty much totally integrated, you know, enmeshed in U.S. policies, foreign policies, but economically there are big divisions. They need China and they're more dependent on China. I, I don't think there's anything from either of the major parliamentary parties in terms of 
what action would they take to prevent a war, or whether that Australia they would, they, I think they both would would automatically probably be drawn into a war if there is a war between China and America. They'd be drawn into the war on behalf of the behalf of the U.S. But at the same time, there is that the 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 issue of the economic dependency on China. So I imagine this is going to develop even further and there will be calls within the Australian business community, maybe stronger calls about uh, calling on Australia not to be so closely linked to the US and that's out of their own sort of interests, their own economic business interests. But then there's also been like the big multinational corporations like the, the weapons manufacturers now the U.S. weapons manufacturers are now operating out of Australia and uh, who would definitely be agitating for a military conflict with China but also economically to ally themselves more with the U.S. because that's where their, their profit interests lie. <laughs> when you mention the major arms manufacturers, it brings us to the Invictus Games and Nick Dean has written about it yep. and he says perhaps the participants this is not exactly what he said perhaps the participants could say our injuries were caused by their weapons mm. can you explain that one? The hypocrisy of the Invictus Games is that this year I don't know what, what, whether that was the same case last year, I imagine it would be is that the Games are, are being sponsored by Lockheed Martin, Raytheon Boeing and a couple of other big multinational corporations who make profit uh, out of create manufacturing and exporting and distributing weapons globally that cause precisely the, the injuries and the suffering on soldiers, on, on veterans. So that contradiction is really obvious. Here we have Invictus Games, which is honouring, um, paying tribute and to, to soldiers who've, who've been... Um, injured basically by, by the weapons by the industry that they are at the same time promoting at this Invicta Games. I'm just wondering if the mainstream media has picked this up at all. I know it's on social media and 3CR but the ABC I'm sure hasn't mentioned it. No, there, w- there was on one occasion. There was, uh, on, it was mentioned on John Fain's program but very, very briefly yes. and it, it was raised as a, a con- the irony, the contradiction and those companies were mentioned. But that was, as I said, it was only sort of a passing comment and it was on a talkback program. But for the ABC to seriously take it up and to do an investigation, do a proper investigation, because it's the irony is so starkly obvious and it's obvious to most, to most ordinary people. The fact that uh, I think that there are more deaths, suicides by veterans that soldiers come from war. There's been a 17%, I think, I read somewhere, 17% increase in veterans taken in the last six years, I think, taking their lives. The level of homelessness amongst the, the veterans has skyrocketed, relatively speaking, compared to, say, 10 years ago even. The Victor Games are a real sort of contradiction. And it's these same weapons manufacturers that are sponsoring the Australian War Memorial. That's right, that's right. They're sponsoring the Australian War Memorial and there's been quite a lot of protests over their sponsorship. And at the same time, when peace organisations have asked the War Memorial to 
sponsor or, or to put up a display on the 11th of November, their Remembrance Day, they were turned down. On the one hand, they're promoting the weapons manufacturers, the multinational weapons manufacturers, which is basically perpetuating a state of where the world is in a perpetual state of war and where Australia's economy is more and more being redesigned and restructured to be dependent on global wars and destruction. The only areas of the economy that are growing are in, in weapons manufacturing and we're not talking about the small businesses that are dependent on, on multinational corporations. We're talking about the big weapons manufacturers in Australia like Raytheon and Lockheed Martin and others. In relation to that, there's just been recent um, revelation in the last, in fact, just in the last couple of days um, or last few days, Tails, which is a huge French multinational arms manufacturer, which is, has a branch in, in Australia. They, they um, manufacture, you know, uh, military trucks and also um, they've got a factory in Benalla, which uh, manufactures ammunition bullets. Investigation a report was had been done by the Auditor General into the purchase of the Hawkeye project, which is the big army trucks. They were being manufactured by Tails, and this and this investigation was found to done by the Auditor General. His report highlighted the fact that the manufacturer or the Australia purchasing these trucks this military trucks from Tails was much more expensive than if they were importing it from importing them from America. But the report was not released because Tails had insisted had a deputation to the Attorney General basically demanding that the report should not be released because they claimed it was it was confidential, it was, you know, security con security confidential. And in the end, the Attorney General had succumbed to the to Tails' demand and blocked out a whole lot of sections of that report which were critical of Tails. I think from our point of view, from the people, ordinary people's point of view, it doesn't matter whether it's Tails or it's another American multinational weapons manufacturer. The issue was that there's this big multinational corporation that's putting pressure, demands on the Attorney General and the Australian government demanding that sections of this investigation be not made public. And they went to, to the lengths of actually threatening to go to the federal court to put a, um, a ban on the release of the, of the report. As I said, it's, it really doesn't matter whether these weapons or this um, war machinery is, is bought from one multinational or another, because um, they're all fucking bad. But the issue is that that highlights is the level of pressure and demands that these corporations are putting on Australia. You mentioned Vanuatu before and it's a very progressive little country in the Pacific. They mightn't like me calling it a little country but it is fairly small. They've been to the UN and doing a lot more than our government do to support the people of West Papua. I think one of the interesting is going to talk about all these Australia as, a, as sort of playing a semi-colonial role on Papua New Guinea and West Papua. Australia has never taken any real interest in developing and supporting the development of, of the people. 
they've only been interested in as a kind of a buffer or as a, as a resource and mining area. And the most recent, since China has started taking interest in, in Papua New Guinea and there have been investments, Chinese investments have recently been made evident. Australia is suddenly taking interest in um, Papua and suddenly announced that they'll be, they'll be investing some aid money in Papua New Guinea. But I don't know, did you read that Richard's article which talked about Papua New Guinea too, that it's pretty much under, this, this is all happening in the context of militarisation of, of our region, of the Asia-Pacific region, and when you put it in together with, with the Darwin port and the Marines, this is, the agenda is, is to make Papua part of a launching place for or a further base expansion of the US base in, in that area. Well, you've only got to see the preparations for the international meeting that's going to be in Port Moresby. I think it's next month. Yeah. We've got Australian troops now in Port Moresby. That's right. That's right. And then there is there's, def- there's definitely a, a clear agenda that's being um, that, that's driving all this. And it's certainly not humanitarian aid or um, support for lifting the conditions of the of the people. I'd like to talk about. Yemen for a few moments where millions of people have been facing starvation for months and months now and there's no figures really about how many people have died. It could be 20,000, it could be 50,000. And link this to the story in the last two weeks of the Saudi journalist who has been brutally murdered. I'm not detracting anything from the, the brutal murder of this man that Saudi Arabia has been killing, maiming, destroying people throughout the Middle East, including their own people, for decades. Mm. Mm. Nobody speaks up, or virtually nobody speaks up. And you've got Trump saying, oh, we've got all these billions of dollars of arms sales, we can't say anything. Yeah, he also said that he loves Saudi Arabia because, and and he sort of said it, Straight with a straight face, he said he loves Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia is making him rich, and that's what he said. I love Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia makes me rich. Uh, I mean, the thing about Trump is that you know he doesn't try to hide. He puts facts as they are. He tells the truth as it is. But yeah, but I've never given a shit about all those arms that are being sold to Saudi Arabia. They don't give a shit. That, I mean. That, that how Saudi Arabia is using those weapons. No, I mean, they'll do it themselves. America's got a wonderful history of not just having crews, of, of engineering crews, but arming, you know, like ISIS, for instance, and, and arming the so-called whoever, you know, under this title of the, the freedom fighters. And there's some terrible massacres that have taken place and terrible assassinations. And Australia is talking about ex- exporting arms to Saudi Arabia. I mean, the, I guess the issue with, with this journalist, this, uh, this Saudi journalist, is that various reasons why that's getting so much publicity, and I think possibly one of them is that he actually was regarded in, in the U.S. as being, uh, I guess, an agent for U.S. interests. So I was told last week that he's possibly a CIA. Yeah. So there's, there's all those all those motives that are being played, but at the bottom of it all and at the core of it, and you know, and is 
the terrible, terrible devastation and suffering that's inflicted on the people by this tiny handful of rulers. And not just the Saudi Arabians. I mean, they're, they're bad enough. But I'm talking about those who run the world at the moment. Remembrance Day, a peace vigil. It's been banned in Canberra. What's the story there? I don't know what the story is there, but it's not surprising. It's not a surprise at all because Remembrance Day is very much controlled by um, powers that be. Remembrance Day is used as a um, as a tool, I guess you could call it, to promote and to to, to promote the militarism and uh, to have a vigil, to have a peace vigil there, particularly in Canberra near the war the War Memorial Museum is just highlights the hypocrisy. It highlights the the militarism of the government. That's the main reason why it's banned is the November. Look, I, I mean we've spoken about this before that there is a real push for basically preparing preparing people for a war. And part of that is the November the eleventh is always remembrance. That's always been, you know, to uphold and the, the huge sacrifices and those and, and the soldiers who have died, which I think is fine. I think that we should remember, and we should, but it should be done in the name of peace and not in the name of war. And, of course, the powers that be want to retain it and to promote the militarism. It's hard to imagine, surely, what a war could mean. Especially now with the, the extent of the, of the weapons. I mean, the First World War was pretty shocking. You think that the First World War, that's when a lot of the new technological warfare had just recently been developed. So when you think about the technological warfare now, you know, pretty bad. But having said that, I still think that if there is strong enough, a strong movement, worldwide movement against war, I think that, that it can be a deterrent. I think the reason why nuclear... Nuclear weapons haven't been used to date is because of the, we're going back to the 50s, 60s, 70s, in the last 60 years where there's been, it, it ebbs and flows, but there's been a constant pressure against nuclear weapons and there's a constant pressure against, exerted on the, on the big powers against war. And in some ways, those localised wars, the regional wars that are taking place now, I mean, they're just as brutal, they're just as bad, but they don't involve in that same period, at the same moment, they don't involve the hundreds and thousands or millions that the First and the Second World War did. So I do think that it's not all doom and gloom. I do think that the fact that we haven't had another atom bomb or another nuclear Weapons, nuclear weapons used in, in, a, in a mass way, the way they were in the Second World War on Hiroshima, is due to the movement, a very strong peace movement. And when you think about the level of activity that's in, in Japan and South Korea and, and in Europe um, in November next month, there's going to be, in Dublin, there's going to be a big global meeting, conference, calling on the removal of U.S. military bases around the world. That's the main theme, but surrounding all of the, this theme is the need to mobilise for people, ordinary people, to mobilise for peace and call no more war. 
and IPAN's next national conference is... Yeah, IPAN's national conference is actually going to be next year in um, Darwin, where the US Marines are. The focus is going to be the US Marines, but the overarching theme is going to be calling for independent and peaceful Australian foreign policy and removal of US Marines and US bases. It will be held at, in, I think it's the first weekend in, in August, so we intend to bring out some international speakers, but, but the focus will be on further accelerating the demand for an independent foreign policy. And also there's a, now there are more and more calls for uh, Australia to remove itself for us, uh, from the US-Australia alliance because US-Australia alliance aids dragging Australian people into foreign wars. And also that the, the existence of these military bases and the US Marines in, in, in Australia is, is actually facilitating possible conflict in the Asia-Pacific region. And, uh, and similarly, I mean, the events that are taking place on the Korean Peninsula, which is a, uh, a slap um, to America, and I think there America is quite worried about that. The movement there against US military bases is very strong. The current president or prime minister, he, he actually was elected on a, on a big wave, on a strong people's wave for reunification of the two Koreans and and even um, calling on the removal of some bases, U.S. bases on the peninsula. And I was speaking there with Shirley Winton from the Independent and Peaceful Australian Network. And you can find IPAN on the web by just put IPAN and I'm sure that you'll find lots to read and learn about and as Shirley said the next conference will be in August in Darwin next year We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts and so do we They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids and come in black, white, grey and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 94198377 or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. Ahoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St. Kilder. Why don't you come on down, do the Google thing, check out echocenter.com and find out how you can help us help you look after the planet. 
And by the way, don't forget to support 3CR. Next on Tuesday Home Time, monthly talk with Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. Bob, the Four Corners program, Poison Papers. Yes, the program was called Poison Papers, which is a big trove of documents that were discovered during the uh, Johnson versus Monsanto trial, which led, of course, to Mr Johnson being awarded $289 million. Monsanto, of course, is appealing it, and the judge is called into question the judgment as well, particularly the $250 million punitive damages that were awarded. But the interesting thing last week was that two of the jurors came out defending their decision, really saying that they got it right. They spent six weeks listening to the evidence. They spent three days deliberating. And on the basis of the evidence, they felt that they had made a very good judgment and didn't want the judge to overturn it. What was your opinion of the Four Corners program? Well, it wasn't quite as strong as we would have liked. It mostly focused on the USA. It told the story of the Johnson case and let the company as well as the farmers who use um, Roundup have a pretty strong say. It covered the trial, of course, briefly. So it was a good, very good program and well worth watching again if people want to go to Four Corners and look at the Monsanto Papers segment. Of course, Roundup has a very long history dating back to 1972 and it had been badged in the 1980s as um, a possible human carcinogen, but uh, that was confirmed in 2015 by the United Nations Expert Committee on Cancer. Of course, the company went ballistic because uh, there are thousands of people who have got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, the disease that was disputed in this case as well. As a result of that judgment, there are now something over 8,000 cases likely uh, to come before the courts in the USA. So Bayer, which now owns Monsanto, is in serious trouble, I think. There's now to be a Senate inquiry? Yes, well, that's the great thing. As a result of the program and, and the um, accusations that were made against the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority in Australia, that it really wasn't independent, that it, it depends its income on the payments that the chemical industry makes. So, for instance, in the case of Roundup, $1.5 million a year flows to the regulator from the sale of Roundup to conduct the regulation of chemicals. It's only a relatively small part of their total budget, but it's a lot of money, $1.5 million from just one chemical. Of course, it is the most used weed killer in the world, and therefore it's got large sales. In any event, the accusations were made that the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority are not independent in their judgments, and as a result, the Senate decided that they would hold an inquiry into the independence of the uh, regulators' decisions about chemicals. That's now been announced. Um, there are um, three Greens on the committee, along with um, a mixture of others. They're asking for public comment by November the 14th. It's interesting times uh, that uh, while they focus on this independence issue, they also give people in the community the opportunity to make comments really about any aspect of farm chemicals, the regulation of them. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Do you know a lot about Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicine Authority? Have you followed them over the years? Yes, and uh, particularly their judgments, which, of course, uh, tend to fast-track 
new agricultural chemicals uh, into the environment and into our food supply. So yes, we're keeping an eye on them. We've been saying that there should be a system for reviewing some of the many older chemicals, some of which have been registered for um, up to 50 years without ever being reviewed. Of course, those registrations were made prior to the modern methods of testing chemicals and we think that such a scheme is absolutely essential. So did the Gillard government, which brought in the chemicals reassessment and re-registration scheme, which was to have started on the 1st of July in 2014. But of course, as soon as Barnaby Joyce became the minister under the then new Liberal government, uh, he moved legislation into the parliament, which cancelled the scheme. To their credit, the Australian Labor Party went along with that. And one of the things, of course, that the, the poison papers show on Four Corners uh, revealed, not for the first time, but certainly put out there and made it possible to have this inquiry, is that uh, the National Party in the three years prior to the, to the show had actually received $83,000 from the organisation CropLife, which is the main lobbying arm of the agrochemical industry. And for their part, the Australian Labor Party had received $55,000. The chemical industry is putting a lot of money into the pockets of our political parties, and that should be a key part of the um, Senate review as well. What would you have liked to be in this Senate review that's not there in the terms of references? Well, luckily, the final term of reference uh, says any related matter so I think that anybody can say anything now it's so broad that hopefully people will um, get active get those submissions in and really talk about any sort of human health impacts environmental impacts alternatives it's interesting that um, just last week in the rural media clip there's an item about the Grains Research and Development Corporation now doing research and development on alternatives to chemical management of weeds. So there are new systems being developed. Agricultural chemicals hopefully will be gradually phased out because there's no doubt, particularly as a result of spraying them late in the season when they used to desiccate a crop just prior to harvest, there are residues of things like Roundup, Diquat, paraquat and so on left in the in the food which is harvested and we're talking about wheat barley canola and many other things that go not only of course for human uh, consumption but also for animal feed uh, we need to get those residues out of our food supply this is something that needs talked about and highlighted in this review as well and there's a role for local councils isn't there well yes um this is a campaign that we're running. We've been talking to local councils for a long time about getting Roundup out of their um, weed management systems, particularly in suburbs, playgrounds, kindergartens, and other places where particularly animals, pet animals, and children are exposed uh, because councils spray Roundup very liberally all around the place. Landcare does the same, of course, in order to manage weeds, and I think that that's practice that has to end as well. So we're encouraging uh, local councils to look at alternatives to chemical weed management. There is a system called Weeds 
which is under review by a lot of councils. And indeed, um, the city of Yarra has uh, recently written a contract for the next five years for weed steamers to control the weed in the city of Yarra. And I think that's a very, very good thing. Uh, one of the councils up near the Great Barrier Reef has done the same thing uh, because chemicals are running off and are part of the picture of the Great Barrier Reef being destroyed. So we hope that um, as a result of the Poison Papers Four Corners show and as a result of our activities that uh, there might be some movement by local government as well. What about the Australian Cancer Council? What's their role been in this? Well, a very mixed one. It was interesting that when the Labor Party came out saying that it supported, and the Greens, I should say, who both came out supporting a review of the regulator, the Cancer Council was um, heard to uh, support such a review. And we wrote to them saying supported it, we backed their call, and so on. And it was interesting that um, the Friday before last, very late in the day, I got a call from the uh, Director of Policy at the Cancer Council saying that, no, the media had been disinformed that, uh, in fact, the Cancer Council hadn't called for a review of the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority and didn't support the inquiry. That was pretty startling, given that it had been all over the media for the previous week following the Four Corners show that they repudiated their position I think that speaks volumes for the influence of the agrochemical and drug industries because, of course, Bayer has got its foot in both camps. Bayer is, on the one hand, one of the biggest drug companies in the world and, on the other now, one of the biggest uh, makers of agricultural chemicals and genetically engineered crops. I would say, without a doubt, that CropLife and the companies uh, had had a word with uh, the Cancer Council and said... Um, we don't want this inquiry and we don't want you supporting it. It was startling. That's all I can say. We haven't had it in writing, unfortunately. I am looking uh, for a written response from the Cancer Council so that we can um, say very clearly they're not on the good side in this debate. They didn't give any explanation of why they weren't in support? Well, just that it was a matter of see that they didn't have a policy for mm. reviewing the regulator that they thought there were other priorities... Um, of course, the Cancer Council is part of the cancer cure industry, uh, which is a very big industry and aligned with the agrochemical companies as well as the drug companies in trying to find the cures and treatments for cancer rather than finding the environmental and other causes, trying to eliminate those. They're in a camp of inquiry about this and publicity and so on, uh, which is not really, in our view, preventative Getting the regulator to do their job properly and to keep toxic chemicals out of our environment is what the Cancer Council should be backing, but clearly they're aligning their interests with those who want to simply continue to accept that cancer is out there regardless of the causes and that they're looking for treatments and cures rather than looking on the prevention side. So I think we serious issues with the Cancer Council. They haven't supported us on other issues as well, so um, we really need to put a big question mark over them. The National GT Scheme and Regulation Reviews, they've been postponed. What have they got to do with this? The people who uh, regulate gene technology and food 
uh, met the Thursday before last in Adelaide. Um, it's of ministers of agriculture and, and food and health from around Australia which repre who represent all of the governments and they meet periodically as the Ministerial Forum on Gene Technology and also the Ministerial Forum on Food. They meet concurrently. And on that occasion, one of the things that the Gene Technology group of ministers was to consider was the deregulation of some of the new genetic manipulation technologies that have now been invented, the so-called CRISPR technologies uh, and techniques, which uh, in research and development... Uh, and we've been lobbying now for a couple of years, saying to them, all of these new genetic manipulation techniques need to be regulated. But the ministers had been asked by the Office of Gene Technology Regulation, our regulator, to agree to the deregulation of a lot of these techniques uh, before they really get going and have any real safe use. So we had been lobbying very hard, sending the evidence in, telling the state and territory ministers, hey, hang on a minute, the evidence is showing that these new CRISPR techniques are not as accurate or precise as the industry and scientists have been saying, that some of the people you've been getting advice from have actually got conflicts of interest because they've got patents in this new technology. As a result, uh, the ministers decided that they would postpone any decision about deregulation. I think that was a win. Of course, we've got a lot of lot more work to do uh, to convince them that uh, that regulation of all of these new techniques is absolutely essential. One of the difficulties is that we need to argue to them very strenuously that we're out of step with uh, the, the world in this. Europe is going to regulate, so is uh, New Zealand. As a result, we need to be in step with our trading partners it's the province of the state and territory governments to look out for the integrity of their food and farm industries. So we need to argue on marketing grounds that uh, deregulation at this time would not be a good idea. Just getting back to the Senate inquiry into the APVMA, November the 14th is the cut-off point for comments. Is that long enough? Would you have liked to be longer? Well, we're um, asking today, in fact, for an extension, and that's definitely not long enough. I think uh, they only announced it on Monday of last week. They haven't done any proper advertising. We had to go hunting around to even find the website where they announced the um, terms of reference and the other details about the inquiry. So um, really all people have got is about three and a half weeks, which is quite insufficient for the public. Uh, to seriously engaged with this process. So we'll be writing to the uh, committee today, the Senate Inquiry Committee, and I'm asking them for an extra two weeks for the interested public uh, to make submission. And hopefully we'll be able to take it up to the end of November. Of course, then it runs into Christmas and the New Year, and they are probably thinking the same. But I really think that if you're going to have a, a proper process, a proper process that really uh, goes to the heart of the issue and gets all the evidence, you need to give the community time to do its job. And the election, of course, in Victoria is happening next month as well on the 24th of November. You've been trying to lobby that through the well, parties? 
election questionnaire out there. Yes, um, our election questionnaire is out in the world and we've asked all the parties uh, what their positions on genetic engineering and chemicals is. We haven't got any solid responses yet, but we're hoping by the 1st of November to have a pretty good idea of where each of the parties stands and uh, we'll be then doing a scorecard for the election and publicising the results. Every election we seek to influence thinking or inform, should I say, people's thinking about key issues on genetic manipulation, chemicals and other related issues. And we do that by canvassing the policies of the best parties and then putting the information out in the world. And of course you're up against the opposition, the, the lobby from the chemical companies who do the same thing, but they've got an awful lot of money behind them, haven't they? They have indeed, and uh, as we mentioned earlier, they ha uh, do dip into their pockets and put it into the pockets of the parties. So, yes, it's never a, a level playing field, but play the game nonetheless, and um, we need to mobilise the community, and uh, for that purpose, of course, uh, we've got um, 7,000 people on Facebook, we've got 4,000 our um, newsletter list and so on and so on and uh, we just keep putting the message out there and hope that the public will be responsive. It's just critical that uh, people like your listeners who are concerned about these issues get engaged with something like this um, Senate inquiry at the moment, are responsive to the information about what the party's policies are when they go to the ballot box. As we've seen uh, on the weekend with the Wentworth by-election, it's absolutely critical that the community engages and we're hopeful there that the independent Karen will be elected. We'll be taking up some of those good policies that we're advocating because the independents in the parliament are really influential. They do have um, good positions. Um, Rebecca Sharkey in particular from South Australia is excellent. It's important that the community engages, that the old parties uh, send a message loud and clear that uh, it's not going to be business as usual anymore uh, on agricultural and other chemicals and on genetic manipulation techniques. We need them regulated. We need stringent regulation. We need our regulators to do their job properly and not be undermined or bribed by the um, agrochemical industry. How difficult or easy is it for people to contact candidates for this coming election, when I'm thinking about independent candidates, how do people find out the candidates in their area? That's a good question. I guess the Electoral Commission is the first port of call and certainly as far as the parties are concerned, there is a list on the Victorian Electoral Commission website where you can go. I guess the best um, other way to ring up the parties themselves. People will have had to uh, put up their hand to be candidates I think by the end of this month, so the um, candidatures are probably not yet closed. The local newspapers and so on will be carrying news of candidates as well. So look out for those. Do question them. Do look out for the information about the issues that are key to you, the regulation of genetic manipulation and chemicals in the food supply. These are not small issues. These are huge public health issues. There are environmental issues as well. We hope that um, the listeners will, uh, will engage, put the questions, the hard questions, to the candidates before the election, make their decisions accordingly. I don't know if this is relevant or not, but the Boyer lectures this year were 
focusing on genetics. Is that an issue that you take up? We don't focus on it as a campaign because, uh, of course, human genetic engineering is in a different ballpark. It's regulated by, or I should say, not really regulated, deregulated by the uh, Therapeutic Goods Administration and the National Health and Medical Research Council. But the Boyer lectures are about uh, human gene therapies, human genetic manipulation. I personally have a watching brief on this and I'm very concerned about the direction of these so-called therapies because, of course, a number of people have died in experiments over the years uh, involving so-called gene manipulation therapies. It's a very vexed area. It's not well regulated. Researchers, I think, are getting away with quite a lot. Uh, We need a thoroughgoing public discussion and perhaps the Boyer Lectures and the people who are proposing to do human genetic manipulation for a whole vast variety of reasons, all of them, of course, badged as good, can also have very important downsides as well. We saw during the 20th century especially that human genetic selection make the perfect human being became very popular particularly in the USA prior to the First World War very infamous in Germany between the World Wars and during the World World War where uh, human experimentation uh, on imprisoned people those who um, were disabled these experiments were absolutely beyond the pale were inhumane and um, totally unacceptable. I I think that we're um, in danger of falling into that kind of mode of thinking. There is a movement for transhumanism, for the convergence of human beings with technologies. That may be the way of the future, but I think we need to put some very big question marks over it or have a, a very thorough public discussion and debate before we wholeheartedly embrace human genetic engineering. We see, for instance, that a number of new, unregistered, really unqualified clinics are starting to pop up around the place, offering so-called stem cell therapies. Now, this is in the same vein. The evidence for any therapeutic outcomes, good therapeutic outcomes from these therapies is very poor, like the cosmetics industry, the um, human cosmetic surgery industry. They are... uh, basically and essentially unregulated at this point. And I just think that our um, Therapeutic Goods Administration and NHMRs need to get busy on making sure that people are not irreparably damaged or killed uh, in what is essentially uh, an uncontrolled experiment with these new technologies. Okay, Bob, talk to you in a month's time. Very good. And that, of course, is Bob Phelps. And for over 30 years now... Bob has been working with the Gene Ethics Network to keep people on their toes and make sure that various bodies do the right thing by us, the people who can be harmed by lots of the chemicals and the things that are in our food, in the air, in the the water. Now, great work he's been doing. It's 526 Half an hour more to go. I'll be speaking very soon with Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees about the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies in 
Sydney University, which has had its own conflicts with um, different bodies, and particularly the University of Sydney over the years. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great and really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. We'd never do that, Freddie. Excellent. We're planning such a good time with you, Freddie. Come to the screening of Bohemian Rhapsody on Thursday, November the 8th from 6.30pm at Palace Westgarth Cinemas and have a real good time with Freddie Mercury and Queen. Tickets are 25 full, $20 concession online at 3cr.org.au or from the station, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. You can also call 94198377 during business hours. All funds raised go to keeping 3CR on air. If you want to have a good time, just give me a This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Two weeks ago I spoke with Professor Emeritus Stuart Riss, who has been awarded the inaugural Jerusalem Peace Prize. For many years Stuart was the director of the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies at Sydney University, which he was instrumental in establishing it. I asked him about the situation back then, it was 30 years ago, what was happening in his world that led to him thinking it would be a good idea. It was really the initiative of social work students who took a poll and decided that the subject they most wanted to study was peace, and yet it was not even that very large, sophisticated university, the University of Sydney, wasn't available to them. It simply wasn't on the curriculum and in fact the senior management said peace was insufficiently academic to be offered at Sydney University. What department were you in? I was Professor of Social Policy and Social Work at that time. So what was the battle to get it set up? Well basically it was political. I happened to be one of the staff elected members to the University Senate, so I knew my way around, if you like, the power structures. And I conducted an interview with the Vice-Chancellor. He had objected, along with other people, to, thank goodness me, peace, that's not academic. So I said, 
But peace is closely associated with conflict. Why don't we call it peace and conflict? Oh, a splendid idea, they said. So that was, so at that point, we got the go-ahead. We got Tim Beasley to come along. I think he was Minister of the Defence at the time to come and open it. And that's, that's basically how we started. There were a few other auspicious events that, that went along with it that gave us a real send-off. Such as? I had met the American ambassador to Australia who, ha who had grown up with Martin Luther King in Atlanta, Georgia. He was an Afro-American. And he had just come from Pretoria where he had been a close colleague of Nelson Mandela's. I asked him to come and open a Posters for Peace gallery and he said he would. And I, I had three weeks to collect about a 100 pictures from all over the world and get them framed in this large uh, gallery kind of room that we were allocated by the university. And we had this amazing ceremony. The university fell over itself in giving me money to tarp the place up because of the prestige associated with having an American ambassador come. So we, we had a pretty good send-off. So you only had one room, is that what you're saying, or there no. were more? No, we had this kind of rather peculiar building. We had, we actually had half a dozen uh, kind of office space rooms, but this one long gallery area, which we wanted to be a place where people could sit and be still and think and keep away from the, you know, the rush and turmoil of everyday life. And that's what the, the very quite, it became quite famous in Sydney, the, the posters for peace gallery became, and that the whole building became the sort of hub for people all over the city, not just the university. How did you envisage the study centre would run with the students, with the teachers, with guests coming okay. in? We started off by saying that this is an advocate organisation. We, we have a responsibility to express what the alternatives to the present uh, economic, domestic and foreign policies are. We need to be on the barricades to advocate peace with justice. And I remember after 9-11, for example, we immediately held uh, an evening with Muslims from all over the state. And they were of, you know, every... And we learned more about Islam that night than I'd ever done before. The only thing we didn't have was alcohol. But after the years of advocacy, and we wrote about three or four books major books which gave us an income like the human costs of managerialism was one it was incredibly successful beyond the market alternatives to economic rationalism was another one but then the university said to us well look you've got to generate some income through students and at that point about five years after we started we wrote a series of postgraduate courses for students and suddenly they voted with their feet and started to come from literally from all over the world we sort of hit on something that young people wanted to know about when you say young people from all over the world what sort of countries were they coming from and were they countries that had been in conflict oh yeah certainly i mean we we even had um students from uh I recall from the, was it the Indonesian military <laughs> sent, and I, brought, I taught a course on um, passion, peace, and poetry. 
we had these guys from the Indonesian military studying it. There were lots of students from from the, from the United States, lots from uh, several from India. We didn't really get it. Well, yes, we did get a few from the Middle East, from Jordan, largely. I think we even had one student from Saudi Arabia. Not many from Europe initially, but um, we offered a master's degree in peace and conflict studies. That's that's uh, went that way on for I don't know about ten years, I think. Explain to me how you teach and listen to and learn about peace and conflicts in a situation. Good good question, Jane. Well, there's a sort of introduction, a basic grounding in the theories, the social and political theory of conflict and peace. Because if you know the theory, you can start to apply it. And, and, And that theory, of course, includes the resolution of conflict. So theories about the value of militarization, you know, what theories tell, give you an expression of reality? So the consensus theories which tell you about how wonderful America is so, or how uh, exceptional Israel is do not give you a picture, a true picture of how the world works. Whereas, if you like, conflict theories expose the underbelly of every society. So that was the grounding before we went on to to other courses. I mean, I remember the first course I taught with a with a colleague was called Resolving Conflict in Organizations. In other words, peace issues arrive in the workplace. It's not just about bullying and violence, but unfairness, inequality, and the, <laughs> the kind of conditions that make people happy or unhappy at work. Now, you're saying your students came from many countries. Did your teachers and lecturers also come from overseas? Well, we didn't have too many of those. It was basically myself and a couple of other people to begin with. And I was I was still professor of social work and social policy. So I was literally running from one side of the campus to another. And the university, once the cutback started, was reluctant to give us, you know, new staff. I had a number of... A brilliant colleagues like like a very good a very very good historian called Dr. Ken McNabb, who moved his office into into the peace building. He's such a good colleague and a good academic that um, you know he became a key teacher as well. No, we it, we, we didn't suddenly create jobs for people, unfortunately. What were the countries you specifically focused on over those years? Because there were so many conflicts, and there still are so many conflicts around the world now. I think the, a major issue for us was making a distinction between peace and peace with justice. We said, well, you know, we're very interested in peace, but we are 1,000 times more interested in peace with justice because peace with justice is about what you're fighting for, not what you're fighting against. Peace with justice is about... Ah, essentially three things. Universal human rights, the philosophy and practice of non-violence, and um, the dignity of a common, what you mean by a common humanity. And that can be applied irrespective of the conflict. doesn't matter whether it's in the Congo or Sri Lanka or the Gaza Strip. That's the, um, the peace with justice is, is the issue. And where in the world is there peace with justice? Good. Well, I hope it's in your radio station for a start. 
Look, where there's massive inequalities, there, there is very little. I mean, I go a lot to Norway because my wife is Norwegian. I'd have to say the Nordic countries come closest. There's an annual review every year that looks at uh, the most peace-loving countries, and usually it's Iceland, New Zealand, Norway, uh, in that order or in some order like that. They're the ones that always come out on top. Why? Because they don't allow guns. They have a foreign policy that's concerned with peace. They usually welcome, in a couple of those countries, they usually welcome refugees. They have a limited prison system, etc. Australia comes a long way down that list, right at the bottom, towards the bottom, along with Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, is the United States, and just above them would be Israel. These are countries that love love having armies, love killing people, love having weapons. There you have it. Well, as you said, the peace, the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies is now 30 years old. The Sydney Peace Foundation is 20 years old. What was that and what is it now? When we created the Peace Foundation, it was because a couple of us realised that, um, that in all the work we did on social justice, there was one big constituency in Australia and elsewhere whom we never spoke to, and that was the corporate world. And it seemed to me very naive to try to struggle for justice if you didn't have communication with people who, who are paid enormous salaries and live in high-rise buildings in central business districts. That was why we created the Peace Foundation, because we thought for one night of the year we could attract the corporate world to take an interest in peace. That was one of one of the, of the reasons. We also thought that, um, you know, how Australia loves to reward sportsmen. We keep on, certainly in Sydney, any rugby league player who knows how to headbutt opponents or put a knee in the groin gets seems to get publicity, if not a reward. And yet, peace, we, didn't, we never honoured peace, the most precious thing in the world. So that was why in the 19, when we started the deliberations about it in 1997, uh, that was why we got together a group of people. I think the very first meeting we had in downtown Sydney was chaired by Kerry O'Brien, you know, of Four Corners fame. That's how we started. You mentioned earlier that the university had a bit of a problem with peace and you had to put conflict studies with it. Did they have any problems with the Sydney Peace Foundation? Well, we didn't have any problems with the Sydney Peace Foundation as long as we rewarded the good and the great. So for about five or six years, you know, we brought people like Muhammad Yunus, Archbishop Tutu and uh, Mary Robinson, and all the universities sort of bathed in the glory that it thought it gave them until we chose a Palestinian for a peace prize. At that point, the university put its cowardly tail between its legs and ran for cover. They didn't want to have the wonderful Dr. Hanan Ashrawi on the campus, although they denied this, but I have evidence uh, to challenge that. So they became lukewarm, and not just lukewarm, but actually under the influence of the Israeli lobby, I have to say, they were downright oppositional, anything but supportive. Look, they blow hot and cold. It depends whether you get um, 
a vice-chancellor or a dean who's got a reasonably sophisticated view of what uh, what peace with justice is about. Did you at all anticipate that, as you could say, that the shit would hit the fan when you nominated her? <laughs> yeah, I expected a bit, but not within, you know, the hate mail and the abusive telephone calls started to come within within 48 hours of the Sydney Morning Herald writing about the choice on the front page of the, of the newspaper. I didn't... I suppose I was a bit... Although I'd been to Palestine and Israel several times, I, I think I was a bit naive about the power of the Israeli lobby. I mean, you can see it over the present Prime Minister's utter stupidity and utter cynicism in deciding that he might like to move the... Um, Australian embassy to Jerusalem to gain a handful of votes, perhaps, in the Wentworth by-election. So, no, I didn't, I didn't really not think about the backlash immediately, but a week later I knew all about it. Did you anticipate any problems at the ceremony itself with people outside heckling and that sort of thing? Look, on the contrary, it became the biggest triumph almost in New South Wales politics. Bob Carr stood by me in a really a courageous way. I got two telephone calls about a week before the ceremony. One was from Gough Whitlam, who said, Comrade, I intend to be at the ceremony. Reserve a seat for me. And Margaret will come too if her hip is better. And then I got a phone call from Dame Leonie Kramer, who was meant to be you know, miles to the right of me politically, but we respected one another professionally. And she also rang up and said, I wish to be present at the ceremony and to show my support for you and for Dr. Ashrawi. So here I had the leading, because Kramer at that time was Chancellor of the University and also Chairman of the ABC. So um, that was, you know, a huge endorsement. Can you remember the night, her speech to the winning the prize? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was because uh, the university forbade it wouldn't let us hold the ceremony in the great hall of the university, so we held it in the um, in the New South Wales Parliament. Yeah, look, we could have sold the tickets three times over. We couldn't get enough people in. Bob Ellis, a slightly slightly inebriated Bob Ellis, wrote Bob Carr's speech. It was a sort of uh, Henry V kind of speech. Ashrawi was charming, very sophisticated, beautiful human being. Yeah, it was a great night. It wasn't the only time you got into strife over your support for Palestinians and uh, what they perceived as an anti-Israel position. I've been in strife over that, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, for 30 years or more. Yeah, talk about some of those instances. Well, they're, they're mostly to do with the mainstream media not wanting to, to hear the Palestinian voice. It's about the mainstream media being so stupidly intimidated by what they think is the Israeli lobby. It's very specific when I, when I talk about the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement to promote Palestinian rights to self-determination. 
I remember one interview on the 7.30 report with Lee Sales. I thought I was going along to talk very clearly to explain to, to the listening public what BDF is. But when I get there, I discover that I'm going to have a, a sort of exchange interview with an Israeli lawyer in, in Jerusalem or, or Tel Aviv. I can't remember one of the two. So, look, people are still frightened to speak openly and clearly about the massive injustices, the massive cruelties that the Palestinians are subject to. Another incident concerned mine and Samar Sabawi's uh, efforts to bring Omar Baghouti, the Palestinian who, who created the BDS movement, to Australia. And he was to have spoken at the, the so-called festival of dangerous ideas but it turned out that, that to talk about justice for the palestinians was far too dangerous an idea to be accepted in sydney or indeed to be accepted in the wheeler center in melbourne so yeah there were lots of controversies like that and the person who took over from you jake lynch he's copped it in the neck too hasn't he yeah correct yeah jake succeeded me oh, goodness me about seven years ago now, I think. He and I refused to, to agree to the offer of a fellowship, I think it was, at Sydney University for a staff member from the Hebrew University because we, we, we said that part of the Hebrew University is built on stolen Palestinian land. So we were accused of being anti-Semite, of racism, of hindering free trade, if you please. They dropped the charges against me, but then an Israeli lawyer came to Sydney to, to promote the case. And, and our authorities allowed it to go on. The case went on for about six months in the, in the, in the federal court. The judge found, for, for, this was against Jake then, they dropped the charges against me. They couldn't pin them on me so easily because Jake had spoken out more explicitly about this particular guy. But the judge, in the end, found entirely for us, and it cost the um, Israeli law firm a lot of money. That Israeli law firm, they're pretty notorious, aren't they? Is that the one yes. I'm thinking about? Correct. Shirat Hadin. They appear to be advised by somebody called Netanyahu. Yeah, no, they're, they're absolute shockers. They go around the world. They prosecuted Jimmy Carter over his book on the Palestine peace, so they failed. But they have a bottomless pit of money, so they try to dramatize the virtues of, of Israel, of Israeli policies. We're talking about the government of Israel, not, not the people of Israel, in the most uh, appalling way. And the authorities in Australia continue to be frightened. I wrote to, I wrote to the head of uh, ASIO about saying, why do you allow these these foreigners to be to operate this country? I didn't even get a reply. People in authority are still frightened, not so bad as they were, to raise the question of justice for the Palestinians. Talk a little about British Colonel Richard Kemp. Oh, this is the guy who goes around saying that Israel has the most humane army in the world. Is that right? That's him, yes. That, that's him. Well, I mean, he must have read George Orwell's 1984, you know, where ignorance is strength and slavery is freedom. 
So this, in the middle of the slaughter of 1,200 Palestinians in Operation Cast Lead in 2009, 2010, and then the murder, killing, slaughter of 2,200 Palestinians in 2014 Operation Protective Edge. This guy appears to claim that um, this is the most humane army in the world. It's almost a criminal, criminal behavior by him. But then if your whole life is dominated by some kind of one-dimensional power from the top down, if your whole life is dominated by an ideology that says that the might is right, then I couldn't expect anything else from him. That's, that's the problem. Did he get to speak at the university? Yeah, I wasn't there. My friend Jake was there. I think he got to speak there. There was an effort by the by Palestinian groups to, um, not, well, not to shut him up exactly, but to make, his, make it difficult for him to push this notion that um, Israel is humane. The Israeli army is, is humane. Do you believe the ongoing attempts to downgrade and possibly close the study centre is mainly because of the support for Palestine or are there other issues as well? No, I think there are other issues. I think, um, look, a major issue would be that the university is becoming a business, not an primarily a business, not an educational establishment. The dollar is king, the dollar is queen, whatever you ever the dollar is sovereign, however you want to put it, which is shameful. And the other thing is, if you're going to protect your patch, you've got to be there all the time. And I was a pretty 24-7 advocate for the Peace Centre. I knew the people who operated in the university. I mean, I haven't been an employee for a long, long time now. So those are the issues. It's about representing the interests. It's about the dollar it's about the cowardice of the university as well, university management, and not being able, not being sufficiently visionary to support what the peace centre was doing. Just finally, Stuart, what do you believe are the achievements of this 30 years and also some of the people that are stuck in your mind that have passed through that study centre? Well, I think the major achievement with the long-lasting effect was the sheer happiness and pleasure that 100 or more students, I'm not sure the numbers, would have had from just being there. They always said, from all over the university, to that place, to that building, to the culture of that centre, said, this is unique, this is not like the university. This is where we, can, where we get support, where we get friendship, where we feel at home. That is what a culture concerned with peace, with justice, should be about. So that's one lasting benefit, I think. And I still get letters from, you know, students who live in America, Jordan, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Korea, saying that sort of thing. What was the other part of the question, sorry? Memorable people. I suppose they're all memorable, really. Well, look... I'd have to say, I mean, this is a bit of name-dropping, Jan, that the most memorable event was when we welcomed Nelson Mandela to breakfast, and he came to us. I mean, I remember Faith Bandler, who was the, the wonderful advocate for the referendum on 
um, Aboriginal citizenship in, what was it, 1967, I was on the Reconciliation Commission. Faith said to me, look, there's one thing I want to do before I die. I want to kiss Nelson Mandela. Stuart, could you arrange that? <laughs> I thought, God, how do I do that? Anyway, I used my friendship with Desmond Tutu, and sure enough, we got Mandela of a long period of negotiation between me and Pretoria. We got him to come, and he came to Sydney, and his first port of call was to the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies. And uh, long before he went to meet all the big shot dignitaries, he spent a couple of hours with us. We I put about 70 or 80 people in a room that was only for breakfast that only really held about 40. He was dignified. He was generous. He was magnificent. He stayed over time. I remember saying to him when I met him in the street outside, I had your um, your assistant here a few years ago, and I was referring to Tutu, and he said to me, on the contrary, I was his assistant, he said. And when we left the building, I remember the rumor got around the neighborhood that Mandela was in the building. And when we came out onto the street, the street was packed with people who had just come from everywhere to meet him, to, 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 to just to see him. It was almost like the royal couple going to Dubbo. Oh, oh come on, don't compare it to that. <laughs> no, in terms of the, you know, the sort of publicity, <laughs> I've got my tongue in my cheek. Well, all I can say is you must be very proud of all your work. Well, look, Nana, I mean, I, I shouldn't give the impression that I did this alone. You can't do anything by yourself. I had lots of great colleagues and friends and students, and it was a, you know, collective effort, really. I just happened to be the, you know, the person who liked to go down the road and get the coffee and buy the muffins. You're downplaying that a bit, I think. <laughs> anyway, I'll see you on, I'll see you in November then. You will. Okay, thank you, Stuart. My pleasure. And that was Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees from a former director of the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies at Sydney University. And he was referring there to the dinner and prize ceremony for his winning of the inaugural Jerusalem Peace Prize, which will be at Parliament House here in Melbourne on the 29th of November. And if you'd like to go, just um, queue into computer, Jerusalem Peace Prize, and see how you go. That's all I have for tonight, but we'll be here at 4 o'clock next Tuesday. I'm just going to play you a song that Eureka is coming up pretty soon, and I'll be back, as I said, next week at 4 o'clock. And done by Leah Law, here in a few moments. Bye for now.